Coming up, I have NBA, I have Rich Football Announcers, and I have season two of Euphoria. I guarantee nobody else has that combo today. It's all next. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Make this summer the best one yet. Invest in a Simply Safe home security system. I have one. I love it. It's a great way to protect your home when you're not there. Um, you need one, especially during the summer. You know what burglars know? People go away during the summer. That's what happens. So when you're away, you want to make sure your place is protected. You want to make sure that you potentially have little camera things you can watch on your phone to see what it's, what's happening at your house, at your front door, inside. You deserve some peace of mind. Get it today with Simply Safe. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we finished up F'd Up Family February with the ice storm. On Monday, that gimmick is done. I had a great time. We had a lot of fun talking about some really, really, really dysfunctional movies. The Ice Storm Podcast, I think we broke the record for longest premature ejaculation podcast we've had on the Ringer Podcast Network. Very proud of that. Take that record to my grave. Also on the Ringer Podcast Network, I hope you're listening to Plain English with Derek Thompson because he has absolutely been crushing it during this Ukraine conflict. He, I've learned a ton. You will learn a ton. He's done a great job. That is one of the best podcasts we have. Check it out. Ringer Gambling Show. We're up in that to Tuesday, Friday with Joe House and John Jastrzemski talking basketball, college basketball, and that is very fun to listen to as well. On this podcast, Rob Mahoney from The Ringer, we're going to talk about Western sleepers. Denver, Dallas, you like either of them? What's going on with John Moran? Is he making like the mega leap? Do we have to factor them into our finals plans? Talk about that with Rob. Rich football announcers, talking about that with Brian Curtis as there has been a boom. Why is that? Why do networks feel like they have to spend a lot of money on their lead announcers. We're going to answer that question. We have some predictions for the future. And then last but not least, my daughter Zoe Simmons, 16 years old. Euphoria is her favorite show. The show became an absolute phenomenon this year. It's the second biggest HBO show that they've had, I think since 2004. She's going to explain why it means so much to her generation and to the college generation. And we're going to do some awards. We had a good time. She made me nervous a couple of times. I'm not going to lie. It's all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Rob Mahoney's here from the Ringer Podcast Network and theringer.com. You can hear him on the Ringer NBA show on Wednesdays. We're going to talk about Denver and Dallas. Um, the West is weird. You look at it, Phoenix, so we're taping this. It is uh, 1040 Pacific time on Tuesday morning. So some of these stands are going to change. But it's basically 
Phoenix cruising to the one seed. Yep. Golden State and Memphis, topsy-turvy for the two seed. They'll be two or three. Utah seems in pretty good shape with at four. They got a two and a half game lead over Dallas and Denver at five, six. And now it's time to start looking at Dallas and Denver specifically, which is what you wanted to do. Because one of them is going to be five, one of them is going to be six. I'm guessing one of them is going to be playing Golden State because I think Memphis is going to leapfrog Golden State the longer Draymond stays out, which means the other one will play Utah. And I think at some point, and maybe it'll start today, we'll be looking at Dallas and Denver as the sleeper teams in the West. Are we there yet? I think we're there. And a lot of it has to do with the Warriors in particular looking a little vulnerable. I mean, both of those teams, Dallas and Denver, both beat the Warriors recently. Dallas this week, Denver before the break. And if I'm either of those teams, we've officially entered the weirdos doing game theory part of the season, right? Like this is when we start looking at playoff matchups is when we start thinking about this stuff. Yep. You have to think seriously, do I want to face the prospect of bumping up against the Suns, who I think are pretty definitively the best team in the NBA so far this season when healthy? Or do you want to, as you mentioned, run through that one-two punch of, do we think we can beat both Memphis and Golden State? To me, I think if you want to win one playoff round and you like the matchup with Utah, that's probably still the easiest way to break through as a bottom seed, as, a, as in the bottom part of the bracket. If you yeah. want to get to the Western Conference Finals, though, I think that 2-3 way is the way to go. And you don't, you, you're hoping that you don't get the apocalyptic John Morant games and you're hoping Draymond Green isn't 100% healthy, but I think you have a chance there if you're Denver or Dallas. Well, the other piece is Denver's 0-4 against Utah this year. Not great. Dallas is 0-2 against Utah. Utah was the team I was looking at as like, you know, the week one in the herd, the one that, the you know, the, the Jaguar is going to be trying to get. Yep. Um, I still kind of feel that way, but you know, I I almost throw the records out with Denver because we know when they get to the playoffs, their team is going to be different. It really is all indications are Jamal Murray comes back. And I think that's going to make a dramatic difference for them to have one more guy, especially yeah. like a guy at the end of games. Their offense is already pretty good. They have the, you could argue, the best offensive player in the league. The Dallas 0-2 against Utah, I watched that game the other night. Utah's tough because it, it's almost like it depends on what the refs have decided during the game, how much Gobert's going to get away with. Sure. And you're watching, like, Luca's just not getting calls, and then he finishes the game. He just takes a bunch of 30-footers, and they don't go in, and Dallas loses. But Dallas-Utah, if that's where we're headed, I think is such a weird matchup series, right? On I think, both ends. I don't yeah. even know who's who it's weirder for. I think Dallas has a better shot in that series than O2 would suggest. And, and some of that is, as you're mentioning, it's the officiating and how it's called. Some of it is just the dynamics of Luka in a playoff series versus Luka in the regular season it can be very different things. I mean, he's he's proven to be the kind of perimeter guy who can really pick you apart. And that's what Denver has been missing, especially in those matchups. I mean, if you don't have the perimeter pieces to kind of move things around and pick your matchups that you want to attack and do that kind of stuff, like Denver... They really don't right now. I mean, they're a skeleton crew, especially I mean, on the perimeter. It's Jokic. Jokic I mean, it's, is yeah. the perimeter guy. Exactly. And Jokic can do so much in that matchup, but ultimately it's going to come down to like, is Austin Rivers going to hit the corner three? Is, you know, is Bones Highland both playing and on and electric that night? Like, oh, you know, what are you getting from these random guard minutes that they've had to kind of pencil in? Very different if it's Jamal Murray, who 
you know, we're now entering into, I think, month 11 of his ACL rehab of his absence. So we'll see if and when he becomes available. Michael Porter Jr. reportedly is going to be cleared for contact pretty soon, could play as soon as this month. Things get I'm interesting a, for Denver very quickly. I'm a little more dubious supporter. We'll see. Murray, it makes sense. It's it's a 10 and 12 month injury. Yeah. He's young. You're going to heal a little faster when you're young. He's traveling with the team, which I think is a great sign. There seems like there's an inner confidence with the team that he's coming back soon. He's been practicing before games. And it would make sense to me that he'd come back. Could he play 35 minutes a game? No, but get 25 minutes out of him. That's yeah. that's a bonus. The, the Denver thing, I want to compare Denver and Dallas in some ways. Because in a weird way, you think of them as the same team and they're really not. They are built around these two incredible foreign guys. These guys that are just unlike really any player we've had in the history of the NBA. And and both of them are on benders right now. Luca's 33, 10, and 10 in his last 13. He's over 40% from three in the last 13, which if he's yeah, if he's shooting over 40%, you're now talking about a 35 points a game guy. Jokic just for the year is 26, 14, and eight. And I made the MVP case for him last week. But what's interesting about them. Denver's pace is much faster. You would think with Jokic, they would be slower, but their pace is faster than Dallas. They're, I mean, they're 21st in pace, which isn't like lightning fast, but Dallas is 30th in pace. Dallas is, yeah, and it's because of kid and it's because of the style they want. They're slow. When you watch them, they're very deliberate. They're, what, they're like a 2022 version of a 90s team where well, they, they want their games to be like 102 to 99. They want 20-second possessions and... They're 25th in points per game, but they're second in points allowed. But the 30th in pace, I was shocked by because I was like, they're slow. I wonder how slow they are. They're the slowest. Some of that I think you get into, like this is the way we want to play because like it or not, it's the way that Luca is going to play a lot of times. He does have that thing that James Harden has done in stages of his career where he wants to bring it up the ball or bring up the ball, control the possession, set things up go through one, two, three different pick and rolls on the way to creating a very high quality shot. Yeah. So it's hard to knock it too much. But does he leave some points on the table not doing the quick outlets that a guy like Harden will do at his best, that guys like Jokic will do, that some of the other best like passers and playmakers will do? I think I think that's that's a yes, too. Like that is one area where Luka can stand to improve, not even just running himself. Just like, can he be a little, can he channel his inner Kyle Lowry at times mm. and get things going for some of the more athletic guys on that team? Because Dallas does have some long wings who can run the floor. Well, and then you add Dinwiddie to it. And there was a game a couple nights ago where both Dinwiddie and Bertans were really good. I think Bertans yep. was like six for eight from three. Um, but you have Brunson and you have Dinwiddie. So you could push the ball if you wanted to. And I wonder, they're a team that feels like they're, if you if we have 22 games left, right? There's not not a huge sample size, but at the same time, we have a bunch of teams kind of in flux in motion in the right ways. I think Denver's one of them, and I think Dallas is another one. Brooklyn, obviously. Then you have Philly, who Philly kind of feels like it. They know who they are already, even though Harden just showed up. But the Dallas, the what I want to see from them potentially is. How small are they going to go? Are they going to play those guys at the same time at the end of the games? Are they going to be malleable at the end of the games? Could they go small ball, bigger ball? And then what you just said about the transition stuff, is this just going to be their pace? Are they just going to be deliberate? Is it going to be like watching a quarterback go to the line and bring the play clock down to four seconds and 
check and look both sides <laughs> and really try to control the clock? Or are they going to dabble both ways? Because I'm with you. I think Luca in transition is spectacular. So I, I understand why this is what kid wants. But at the same time, I think that's a nice little thing to have in their back pocket. Who knows? The, the size is going to be something to watch because, as you mentioned, they've been a good defense for most of the season now. Really solid across all five positions in a lot of these lineups. But the reason they are is because they can defensive rebound. And they've been able to pull that off, that magic in the hat of being small and gang rebounding. That can get different in the playoffs. That can get a little stressed as teams go to their best lineups more often or playing their best bigs more often. Some of them are playing small more or less often, depending on what their team looks like. I've got my eye on that for Dallas. Like, Can their defensive rebounding hold up to prop up the fact that they don't have a defensive player of the year candidate? on that yeah. team. They don't have like the one guy who's, they don't have the Draymond Green who is communicated and anchoring at that level. They've got to all do it together. And, and that a lot of those possessions are going to conclude with, can you get, secure a contested defensive rebound? It's funny that just on paper, they would be Utah's kind of kryptonite team, you'd think, even though they're own two against them this year. But just in general, like the whole question of Utah is what happens if a team goes small and they try to play Rudy off the floor? Been, we've been talking about it for three years. Dallas could easily do that. Then you look at Golden State. It's like, what happens if they go against an awesome center? Well, they might have Denver in round one. <laughs> and, and you might have to figure out, oh, Kavon Looney, good luck. You're going to be playing 30 minutes tonight. Wiseman, yeah. come on in. You have six fouls. Uh, Draymond, good luck. But the two teams that on paper have the one piece that the other team doesn't want to see in Utah Golden State. I don't like the I don't like the uh, Denver matchup for Golden State. I I really don't. I think I think there has to be real urgency if you're Golden State to try to hold on to that two seed. I think they're two games up in the loss column, but the wins are the same. But watching Ja last night, I mean, Ja is like, this is now 19, late 80s Jordan stuff every night. The stuff he was doing last night where it's like, I'm going to get 50 points. And San Antonio's like, no, you're not. We're going to double team you. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to get my 50. And he did it. That was like at another level from what I've seen from him. One of the most impressive end-to-end regular season games I think we've seen from anybody this season, especially, maybe in recent no history. The combination yeah. of spectacular plays, as you're mentioning, the will to just fight through any pressure, any coverage, any defensive assignment, doesn't really matter for that guy right now. So I, I don't know if... That, that's kind of the catch in this is like I'm looking at Golden State and seeing for a two seed, for a very good team, an opponent that could be vulnerable. But if you have to go through Memphis to get there or vice versa, if, you know, depending on how they end up two and three, that's what makes it what makes it challenging. But the Warriors part of that, it a lot of it comes back to Draymond and how you feel about his back injury, whether he's going to be healthy and not just on defense, which that goes without saying he's going to have to guard bigger guys while injured, which is always tough. But if he's not able to dribble, drive, and attack and be aggressive on offense, that's where we've seen them slump really hard recently. Is like when Steph is off the floor, they just don't have enough guys who are projecting as threats offensively. And you're talking since December 1st, where they're 16 and 11, their last 27. You know, and Dallas is 19 and 7, Denver's 19 and 9. It's a pretty big sample size. And all of it is Draymond related. He went out on. Yep. January 5th, but, you know, I think there's this feeling, I I don't think people look at recent record sample size, basically, 
and it's important every year. You know, with Golden State, I think people just said, no, no, it's going to be Phoenix and Golden State. It's like, I don't know if Golden State's going to be in that mix with, unless I know that Draymond's 100%. I don't think they're going to be able to fence some of these teams off. The thing with the two seed, though, you get to play Minnesota. Minnesota 17 and 10 in their last 27. But watching them, and I've watched a bunch of them recently, I don't, not going to be too afraid of that team in a playoff series. I don't like their decision making. And um, it, the, the Russell piece of it is just paralyzing for them. Well, they've you had to see it. You could see Edwards in the corner now in some of these crunch times where he's just like, ah, oh, this fucking guy. Mm. Really? Is he going to do it again? It's just a, the 25 foot step back. All right, that's what we're doing. So I, I don't. I just don't trust them. I, I would want to see them in a playoff series. They've had a bit of a crisis defensively too, in terms of what they're doing, how they're covering. Because the system, I mean, they were super aggressive out of the gate the first couple months of the season, until teams started figuring it out. And that's where you get worried. Is like, do you have the personnel to deal with once teams have kind of solved what you want to do? Yeah, I don't think Minnesota really has that. They have some talented players. They have some explosive scores. A lot of guys you would respect. But not a lot of guys who are going to force you into really challenging second and third level decisions. Well, with all that said, they are by far the best playing team that we're going to oh. have. It looks like out of the out of those West teams, because you have, I mean, they're going to be the seventh seed unless something dumb happens. The Clippers are kind of lurking; they're two games behind them in the loss column. I don't know what we're getting from these Paul George updates, where there's like his torn. His torn elbow ligament, his UCL, it's there. He got another MRI today. It's like that. So he's got a torn, like in baseball, you're out for 15 months with a torn elbow ligament. And then Kawhi, nobody's heard from because he's Kawhi. Yeah. But, um, but the drop off, even let's say the Clippers are healthier. So then you have Minnesota and Clippers, two talented teams. And then the drop off to this disaster of a Lakers team, then New Orleans at 10, whose best player hasn't played all year. So that's going to be a weird one. Weird playing. New Orleans has been pretty plucky. They've, they have. They're turning the CJ McCollum situation into something really positive. Again, like them and, and Portland has played over their head, relatively speaking, but I think they're kind of, they're, they're packing it in in a different way with Nurkic and his injury situation and going to yeah. slow play that. So I think we have a good look at what the 10 teams are going to be. And as, as you mentioned, Minnesota, head and shoulders above everyone else, unless the Clippers go oh, surprise, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are fully healthy and ready to go after all. You know, the like Netflix, we're going to drop an entire season uh, without even <laughs> announcing it kind of strategy. We'll see, we'll see how that fun. works out for them. Well, we could have, you could see Minnesota. I mean, they may not know, let's say they, they, they play the Clippers in that first playing game, right? Winner gets the seven seed. Yep. So you could see Minnesota playing the Clippers losing, then playing the Lakers, winning, and then having to play Phoenix. Yeah. Which would be kind of, that'd be not awesome. Um, but the Minnesota getting the seventh seed leaves the door open for a 2-7 matchup between Minnesota and Memphis, which would be kind of like an NBA Twitter league pass wet dream. <laughs> Two teams that have been really fun to watch this year, but I don't think they're necessarily on the America radar. Um, but you would have just all the young talent in that game with Edwards and Towns and Russell and then uh, all the Memphis guys, obviously, and then Ja, who's become the breakout star of the season. Um, that would be a fun one. And Edwards oh, yeah. would be talking a lot of shit, I think. And if we can give some programming advice, do not relegate that series to NBA TV. Like no. those, are, those are young stars who should be 
front and center on the NBA stage. That would be a really fun series. As you mentioned, two teams that have been highly entertaining, very competent, and in a lot of ways need each other as a playoff matchup. It's like, let these two teams with young guys duke it out before they have to go against like the real veteran steeled playoff contenders. I think that would be a really good way to kind of set the stage for the second round. In general, I think our advice to the league would be just put all of your stuff behind Ja right now. I, it's a good bet. I think you have a moment here with him where you could really blow him up in a real way. And I know he's big already, but I there's a whole other level for him to go. I think night to night, he's been the most fun guy to watch in the league, which is saying something because we have so many good players right now. But I, I was like, right now, best offensive weapons. And this goes back to our Dallas-Denver discussion. Jokic, Durant, Luka, and Embiid, I think are on a plane at the top, right? Of just like, awesome, consistently awesome offensive players. Joss, I think that makes sense. Just threatening to move into that class. And for me, the thing is, is this a league pass night to night? You play a different team. It's hard to get used to what he's doing. Could you plan for it more in a playoff series? Or is this just turning into like a, a late 80s Jordan 2002 Kobe type of situation where it's just like, all right, this guy's now unstoppable. We just have to admit this. I I do feel like you could game plan some stuff because we've seen these different teams put walls against them and stuff like that. But then we've also seen him just dash those plans every time. So I don't know. Do you think that's this Memphis team can be game planned for? I think they can be game planned for more than they are currently, but not in a way that's going to stop what Jod does. I mean, we've already seen him as a play-in, playoff type performer in some of those yep. situations. And he's... He's passed every test so far. And I think what makes him different in terms of guards or, or you know perimeter players you would put the wall in front of is he's he's got the floater. He's got some mid-range game. He, he, like The three comes and goes, but can be really effective for him. I think what's interesting with him, he might have some stuff to figure out in terms of reading coverages and figuring out exactly how to break you down over seven games. But once he makes even like a half step forward in that regard, He's so explosive and so unpredictable, all, like on the move. It's just going to, all that's, that growth is going to be an exponential curve for him relative to even some of these other, like, you know, guys like Luca who have all this talent and skill in the world. He can, he can work off his size, but there's always going to be an uphill battle just because he doesn't have the first step that a guy like Jod does. And that's just the reality of, of having that kind of toolbox to work with and what makes him so exciting. And as you mentioned, such a sure bet from, of the, the marketability of the league and the kind of personality he is. I mean, he's he's the whole package as a player. I think it's becoming really important. I look at uh, Curry was the last guy that hit like this during a season in an organic way where it's just like, I've never seen this before. Yeah, You know, and we, we've seen a lot of good players. Like, I, I think Jokic is really special. I love watching Jokic. Um, Luca, all the stuff he does. Embiid has been completely overpowering. Durant's the best scoring forward we've had. There's an unpredictability that Ja brings to the table that is just unlike anyone else in the sport right now. And it's very similar to what, what the Jordan Kobe stuff was like way back. And I don't mind throwing him in those sentences anymore after what I saw last night. Because last night was outrageous. This, the Spurs like did not want him to get 50. And he just kind of figured out how to get to the basket anyway. He did 
the dunk that he had combined with that inbounds play. Oh my God. To have those things happen within like 10 minutes of each other or five minutes of each other or whatever. That's like two of the best plays of the season. Yeah. And it feels like he's gaining confidence. And we've seen this with guys after the All-Star break. Sometimes they come out of the All-Star break and it's just, they kind of blossom. It happened to Davis four years ago, you know, where they just, they, all of a sudden the game slows down for them. I think it's happening to him. So we're going to, they play the Celtics Friday now. I'm going to have Verno on the pod Thursday because I really want to dive into it. But that Friday game, Celtics-Grizzlies is all of a sudden like a weirdly fun, hmm, are these two teams that we should be taking more seriously in the playoffs kind of kind of matchup, right? I like these late challengers. You know, we thought yeah. we had a good grasp of the field. Even we were thinking, okay, what if Philly gets hardened at some point? Like we had all that stuff mapped out. And then the Celtics come on strong post, you know, after their trade for Derek White. The Grizzlies have had incredible stretches this season, but I think Jaw with that kind of performance and some of their recent play, I mean, really, they've been building toward this all season long, but they're just so credible and so hard to take down even relative to some of these other great teams in the West. You know, it, it's, it's, I think it's hard to talk yourself out of the Grizzlies at this point. And that really speaks to where they are and what they've been able to put together. Uh, just incredible roster. And the body language doctor loves the chemistry. <laughs> Memphis, Golden State, Cleveland, I think, win the chemistry awards this year so far. Would you throw anyone mm. else in there? Those are the top three. Just the, the teams that so obviously really like each other. Those make sense. I mean, just the fact that Ja gets a 50-piece and they take a team photo afterwards. I think I think the body language doctor could have a field day with that one. Well, the other thing, you think with the situation the league's in right now, with, with these guys jumping teams and you know, Harden quits on two teams in 13 months and over and over teams trying to put together big threes and guys being constantly unhappy in this situation or that one and intimating they might leave like what the le stuff LeBron pulled at All-Star Weekend. And then you have Ja in the small market. It's very similar to the KD 2010-11 range with this young little possible homegrown champ that's brewing led by this guy who's like this beloved teammate who plays hard every single game and who seems like he's getting better and better, I would be moving the league behind that guy. And some other ones, obviously. You still have Curry. You still the Jokic-Luka combo. KD, when he's out there, is still magical. Giannis, I think, is kind of the East Coast, East, Eastern Conference version of John in a lot of ways. But um, Ja is the guy that, you know, like kids in LA and Kansas City and... Florida, like I could see him becoming like the Jersey guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he was the top selling Jersey in like a month. I can see the Jersey. I can see the signature shoe. I mean, you can see it all coming together for a guy like him. And I like, I actually like the Giannis comparison as you were saying, you know, Giannis is kind of the East Coast version or East Eastern Conference version. Just because there's, there's kind of an overlap in their personalities in terms of like the defiance that they play and operate with. And maybe that goes yeah. hand in hand with what you're talking about. Like if you're going to stick it out with one team as Giannis has for as long as he has, you have to be a little bit defiant. You have to play a little bit defiant. And I like the presence of that kind of person on the scene in the league. I like, like John, John Morant interviews are sensational. Like he's such an incredible draw as a personality. And the fact that you're stacking that on top of probably the most exciting young guard or maybe just the most exciting guard in the NBA right now. That, that's the kind of thing you have to get behind as a league. Also weird, the symmetry, if you're really going ceiling for Ja, the symmetry of, uh, you know, you think like Durant, Odin goes right in front of him. We have the big debate. Odin goes first, Durant goes second. 
Same thing, Ja Zion. Oh my God, everyone wants Zion. Ah, well, your consolation prize is Ja. And then Ja's like, if you're doing this over again, Ja's obviously the first pick, but this all happens sometimes. The guy after the guy becomes the bigger guy. You mentioned Milwaukee. Russell and I talked about them a little on Sunday. I'm officially at the concern point with them. Where are you? Edging there? Yeah. I would say I'm, I'm, you know, probably more of a believer, generally speaking, of Milwaukee than most in the season that they've had. But some of the, like, their second half problems, some of the defensive issues, like, it's, it's kind of starting to coalesce in a way that's inarguable. And it's just getting more and more complicated if the Sixers continue to look this good. That's really the biggest problem for them. We'll we'll see with the Sixers. They have some some good one, good games coming up, and I think it's one thing against Minnesota and the Knicks. But we'll I want to see a team really try to punch them in the mouth a couple times and see what happens. Minnesota yeah. and the Knicks was a really good soft launch for the Harden yeah, experiment. Hundred percent. You know, good matchups, good styles to kind of start that off against. But yeah, let's see what it looks like when teams start really teching in on the Harden and Bead pick and roll and really trying to dissect it and pick it apart. I mean, it's a tough thing to do. But somebody's got to try. Tybal, get ready for some open threes. <laughs> hope you hope you enjoy being uh, nobody within five feet from you. So if you had to say West Finals right now, who'd you go with? I mean, I think Phoenix is there. So the, the, it's really just the question of the other spot. I'm I <laughs> I'm inclined to pick Memphis right now, and maybe wow, this is just like, interesting. Maybe, Maybe this is a particularly down week for me in terms of like my opinions of Warriors basketball, but I don't know. I'm I'm very I'm more concerned about the Draymond situation than seems to be the consensus. I know there's a lot of optimism he's going to be back out I'm with there you. soonish I am and right healthy. Right next but to you with the concern. I'm with you. It's just one of those things where there is no safety net. You know, like as you were mentioning, aside from playing Kevon Looney 40 minutes and James Wiseman eight. That's kind of what you got. And so that leaves me very nervous to be a contending team this late in the season that I don't know what I'm getting out of Draymond. I don't know what I'm getting out of Clay. I don't know if the no-Steph lineups are going to work at all. That doesn't feel necessarily like a safe bet for a conference finals to me. And we have a one-third of the season sample size now where they're not one of the top five teams, at least for the last third of the season, which makes me... A little nervous. Yeah, I think Denver is the biggest wild card team to me because Jokic is that good. Yep. And if Murray comes back and can look relatively close to Murray again, that now I'm now I'm intrigued. In the East, I have no idea who the who the F knows. And honestly, like Brooklyn, sure. Philly, maybe. Yeah. You know, you go on down the line. I'm not writing off Milwaukee yet. I'm concerned. But uh the only one I I, you know, there've been a lot of stuff lately about the odds. Russell talked about it here on Sunday with the odds with the Celtics. That that one I'm confused by. I don't, I don't see a scenario where they're one of the five best teams in the it's, East. It's too crowded for them, and there are too yeah. many teams that I think are good, are similar enough defensively that like can be just as good at what the Celtics do best to kind of neutralize yeah. some of what makes them special. So, I mean, again, they've been incredible over this recent stretch, but. It's just, it's so tough to make it through that conference alive when you can't fully trust your offense for 48 minutes a game, which that kind of seems like where they are even still. All right, I think we hit everything. Before we go, though, give me one crazy take. You're always measured. You're thoughtful in your takes. You're not a crazy take guy, but do do you have anything deep down you wanted to get out about the season where it's like, I just, in my soul, I feel this, but I'm afraid to say it? 
Is picking Memphis for the conference finals not crazy enough for you? That's pretty crazy. I haven't actually heard somebody go all in on that one. Well, that's pretty good. I don't know if I want to be penciled into the all in corner. I reserve the right to change my mind in a week. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm getting there. And I think they have to have the two seed for me to believe that. That Memphis would. Yeah, I think yeah, I think they would have to have two game sevens at home for me to feel 100% comfortable with that. And then the job piece, this is why I've never bet on it. Just the way he plays just puts the fair God of me at all times. And when you're up in the air that often and you're banging into bodies that often and you're falling sideways that often, like at some point, at some point there's luck becomes involved and that's what worries me with them. But I really enjoy watching that team. All right, Mahoney, we'll hear you on uh, Ringer NBA show tomorrow, right? Absolutely. All right, cool. Thanks for coming up. Thanks, Bill. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? little doubleheader, little NBA doubleheader. Right, first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time, that's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, Brian Curtis is here. You can hear him on the Press Box podcast. You can read him on the ringer.com. We want to talk football announcers. There's this weird thing happening with uh, sports media right now. There are a bunch of suitors in the space. And after Tony Romo got a lot of money last year, I think it was like $18 million a year. We thought that might be an aberration. It was not. It looks like ESPN is going to pay Troy Aikman even more than that. And now everybody's jacking. There's names being thrown around. Brian, what the hell is happening? Bill, welcome to the announcer empowerment era. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Uh, What's happening? Well, I think two things are happening. One is it's always good when you bring another bidder to the table. Hmm. And announcers have had NBC, CBS, ESPN, and Fox. Oh, hey, here comes Amazon. So Troy Aikman, in his free agent year, could have three bids, Fox, Amazon, ESPN. The second part of it, and I think this has gotten a little bit ignored in the coverage, is ESPN is freaking desperate. Yeah. ESPN has had years and years to figure out a Monday night football booth. So they're not just bidding. (laughs) They've got a briefcase full of money that they are ready to give Troy Aikman, and apparently another one they're ready to give Joe Buck or Al Michaels, to say, please fix this problem that yeah. we've been totally unable to fix ourselves. Well, there's a third piece, right? Well, let's start with the with the Aikman piece. A lot of Romo love out there. 
Mm. Romo's the guy. It's the best one out there. Oh, we got to keep Romo. Here's 18 million a year. Was it a coincidence to you that Troy Aikman, in my opinion, had the best announcing year of his career last year? I thought Troy Aikman <laughs> was great. We talked about this multiple times on this podcast with Sal and a couple others. Like, I, it was a more assertive Troy, Troy Aikman. He was willing to throw quarterbacks under the bus in ways that I haven't heard him do before and was just way more critical, way more insightful. Dare I say, I thought he was the best announcer of uh, all the color guys last year. Um, did Romo light a fire that? under him? Yeah. yeah. And can you imagine saying that a few years ago? No, I, I would not have imagined saying that. I always thought he was like a B minus. I, I thought he played it safe. He was down the middle. He played it nice. When he was critical, you always had to kind of read between the lines. That was not Troy Aikman last year, Brian. You're absolutely right, Bill, as uh, Troy Aikman used to say <laughs> before he became salty Aikman. I completely yeah. agree. And just imagine if you're Troy Aikman. 2017, Tony Romo comes in. He's another Dallas Cowboys quarterback. He did not win jack squat compared to what you want as a Dallas Cowboys quarterback. And all of a sudden, all these media critics are going, oh, Tony Romo, he's the best announcer. He may be the best football announcer ever. Yeah. This is amazing. He's doing something you, Troy, can't do. And I don't know if that was in Troy's mind over the last couple of years, but it sure sounded like it because we got, as you point out, the salty Aikman. We got the Aikman before Jimmy G threw the ball to the Rams in that last drive going, uh, too bad for the too bad for the 49ers. They got to throw the ball with Jimmy G here. Right. Because we know that's doomed. We got Aikman saying, you know what? I'd love to be announcing this week instead of that crappy Bucks Eagles game I got assigned in the playoffs. I'd rather be doing San Francisco Dallas right now. Yeah. And it's funny because I think that allowed to him to connect to the audience in a way he had not done for almost two decades on the air. Right. Romo connects because he's enthusiastic. Oh, Jim, we got to go. And you go, oh, yeah. I, Here I'm we excited. go, Jim. Yeah. I'm excited <laughs> for football. And that guy's excited for football. So I yeah. like this. Aikman connected through saltiness. Ooh, Troy Aikman, three Super Bowl rings, willing to just absolutely crush a quarterback like Jimmy G on the air. Remember last year with Jared Goff and he was crushing him on the air so so much so that Mike Silver got mad at it. Oh, you're being too mean to Jared Goff. Yeah. And I think I think that really helped him connect. It really did. I did the uh, Jalen Rose on you just there. The your your Romo has inspired Aikman take was your take, but I formed it in a phrase of a question like it was my take. I'd like to apologize. <laughs> Unlike Jalen, who just steals other people's takes and then rephrases them as his own take, you were the one who pointed out the Romo Aikman thing, and then you throw in the Dallas Cowboys piece of it too, where Aikman was a three time Super Bowl champ and Romo won nothing. And I do think it lit a fire under him. So. All right, so we, we've unpacked the Aikman piece of this. Is Aikman worth that amount of money? No, but no announcer is, but that's not the point. People have asked me in my life, they're like, what? Like, I was on a text thread with a bunch of friends and they're like, what the fuck is going on with this? Why does anybody think an announcer is worth 18 million, 19 million a year? They, I'm watching the games anyway. I don't care who the announcers is, right? Here's my theory. I'm going to throw this at you. You haven't okay. heard this theory from me. I think it's worse for the network, whether it's ESPN, NBC, Fox, whoever, when they have the boring crew, the crew that sparks no real anything that doesn't feel weighty or famous in any way. It's not like it's bad. It's not like we're not going to watch the games. Like a good example, Steve Levy, solid announcer, 
Brian Greasy, not sure why he was in that booth. Louis Riddick, he's fine. The three of them together, completely forgettable and fine. They were fine. They weren't great. They weren't that entertaining. None of them were really that famous. There was a lack of kind of big timeness from every broadcast that you felt. And this is what ESPN has struggled with really since Gruden left. I thought Gruden was, I, I thought he was insufferable, but at least he was famous, right? There was a fame that came with him. And I, my theory is networks are so afraid of feeling like they have an irrelevant or unimportant or non, not famous enough announcing crew that they're just willing to overpay. So to take that conversation off the table. So for his pen, Trey Aikman's not worth 18 million a year, but you know what is worth 18 million a year? People saying every year, eh, ESPN's broadcast doesn't feel big enough. <laughs> so now you have Joe Buck and Trey Aikman. Let's say that's a combined 35 million a year. That conversation is now off the table. And if you're one of these networks, what do you care? It's a rounding error. You're spending billions of dollars on football. What do you care if you're spending 35 million on two announcers? That's like throwing the fucking waiter a tip at the end of a $10,000 dinner. That's my theory. What do you think? Yeah. And I think we can even go further into the psychology of ESPN because remember, this was the network that when John Skipper left, spent all this time trying to repair their relationship with the NFL. They were, yep. Burke Magnus was using the term reset. <laughs> just like the Americans did with the Russians way back right. when Obama was president, right? We need the reset with the NFL. So you worked so hard, right? You put the combine on ABC. You just worked Roger Goodell, worked the NFL league office. You got a better package, we think, of games coming up. You finally have a Super Bowl in five years, ESPN's first ever Super Bowl. Well, now you got to get the announcers right, right? Like the worst thing that you could do would be then to fumble who calls the game. Yeah, you got all the way to the mountaintop. You figured everything else. Now we just got to figure out the right announcers. But to your point about paying these guys too much, I was talking to Shoemaker about this yesterday. Well, since announcers don't bring any viewers to a game, on the one hand, you could say, oh, they're worth not very much. On the other hand, you could also say, as long as we're talking about funny money, they're worth anything. Right. <laughs> right. Because you're not, there's no relationship between, it's not like a sitcom star or the cast of succession where you say like, we're going to pay them this much and then we're going to make this much off the game. They don't have anything to do with it. So why aren't they worth 18 million? Why aren't it's, they worth 25 million? Like, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. It's like the billionaire birthday party thing, right? If a billionaire could have an awesome birthday party for himself, but if he goes and he gets like the white stripes for his birthday party and spent $7 million <laughs> a year on the white stripes. Now people are like, holy shit, what a birthday. And it's like, what does he care? It's like a rounding error for them. I think the last few years for ESPN with everything that happened in the booth was pretty embarrassing. I mean, they had over and over again, inferior booths. And I'm going back to when they put Sean McDonough and John Gruden together. Sean McDonough, really good broadcaster, probably a Hall of yeah. Famer. Him and yes. John Gruden were absolutely... Uh, awful together. It was like watching a couple in, you know, uh, a TV show that you know they're going to break up. They just had no chemistry at all. Um, and then they, you have the Witten thing. Then you have w w basically ESPN resets their announcing crew and they're like, we just want a professional broadcast. That's how, that's how far their expectations had fallen. They didn't even care about being entertaining anymore. But over and over again, They've kind of been grasping. I actually, I still feel like the Kornheiser experiment could have worked. 
And I, I've talked about this in the past. I just don't think he had chemistry with Tariko. But I think if it was the right announcers, I think that one could work. But going backwards, every time somebody has entered the football fray, they have always overpaid for the announcers, right? Yep. Fox did it with Madden and Summerall. NBC comes in. They they spend money like it's, you know, uh, a benefit concert with superstars. They're just like, we're getting Fred Goodelli. <laughs> we're getting John Madden. We're getting Al Michaels. So we'll get the best sideline reporters. Like Dick Eversall is like, I don't care. I'm just splurging on everything. And I think there's a fear that Amazon is going to do that too with the announcers. So it goes back to your original point. You always want more suitors for whatever you're doing. Amazon comes in. That just blows this up. Now you have five people that would have football. But there's mm-hmm. really only three good color guys. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're now, we're now to the point where, and I saw there was a report the other day, I think it was in New York post that maybe Amazon wants Kirk Herbstreet to do Thursday night football. You know, we're sort of running out of people. Sean McVay was an idea. He said, no, your reservations about Sean Payton, which are also my reservations about Sean Payton. You put on Twitter the other day. So who's going to be the next guy? We have to talk about that Sean Payton thing later because I think it's a really important combo. We've had it before, but I think we have to have it again. Um, there's three guys. There's Collinsworth, there's Romo, and there's Aikman. And mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even necessarily have put Aikman into that group two years ago, but now I think he belongs. Um, if you're Fox and you're like, this is great. We're saving so much money not having to pay these two guys $30 million. People are going to watch us anyway. Two years from now, they're going to care. <laughs> and by the way, I thought Burkhart and Greg Olson were awesome together. Yeah. I really enjoyed that broadcast. Is it big enough? Is it going to feel big enough when those guys are doing the NFC title game? And the Super Bowl this year. And the Super Bowl. Don't and forget. It's like, I forgot about that. So you have, let's say, NFC title game. Let's say it's, I don't know, Rams at San Francisco. And it's like, here's Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson. I'll be excited because I think that'll be a good broadcast. But like, what is my dad going to think? You know, what is like uh, the mom in Kansas City, the 49-year-old mom who's like, she watches three football games a year. And she's like, where's Troy Aikman? I think they think about this stuff. I think it can go either way, though. Because is that person going to be worried because there's not a super famous ex-quarterback on the screen? Or are they just even going to notice who the announcers are at all? I would, I think goes back to the original point. Does it really matter? And for some reason, it felt like it mattered with Monday Night Football, but I think it's because it was Monday Night Football. Yeah. Because we grew up with like Monday Night Football is always going to take the most chances and it's got this legacy. And now it's like, oh, here's Brian Greasy. And it just didn't feel big enough. But I, for Fox, like, I actually think they should zag. I think Burkhart and Greg Olson would be ready to be the number one guys, you know, so th- and maybe you add a keep to and you go three man booth and <laughs> that could be super fun. I also, I'm on the record. Like if it was Gus Johnson and a keep to as the number one team at Fox, I would be delighted and overjoyed. <laughs> I would, I think the interesting thing about Fox is this a couple of years ago when that, when that Tony Romo contract was signed, that first of all, that that's just the bomb that started all this, right? Yeah. That, that is the thing that put us on this trajectory when he got 17, $18 million a year, more than double what some of his colleagues were making. Everybody's like, Whoa. But I remember there was this sense inside Fox that said, we are not going to be held up like that. 
We yeah. are, we cannot let ourselves be put in that position. And the way we're not going to be, let ourselves be put in that position is we're going to have a really good number two announcer. It's going to be like our backup quarterback. So that if we get somebody like Troy Aikman, and at, at the time, I think they thought Troy was going to go be a GM or a president of a team, maybe. But if we got this, if Troy Aikman gets a big offer, we can be like, we have a plan here. This can work. This can be really good. Now, you're right. It may not be a guy who's like a Hall of Fame quarterback, but this can work. So, again, if they're going to stick to their plan, you look at what Buck's going to get. You wonder, is it worth having him? Because he calls a World Series 2 for Fox, right? But you have to come in and maybe you're willing to do plan B, even if it's not glamorous. Well, we've talked about this before. The the, the ultimate example is Brent Musburger, Jim Nance in the... Uh, sure. In 1990, where I was like, oh my God, they let Brent go. And then it's like Jim Nance just steps in and it's fine. <laughs> He's still and there. Yeah. I, I think Joe Buck, I think, is the best play-by-play guy right now. But if he leaves and they replace him with Kevin Burkhart, they'll be fine. And I think he could do both sports and they'll be fine. The other thing that's interesting. So in basketball, we don't have super famous people announcing the games. Like, think about TNT the last for however many years. It's been like either Reggie Miller, Steve Kerr. There was some Mike Fratello in there. This year, it's Stan Van Gundy. Yep. It's not like they're, they're saying to themselves, we got to get Dwayne Wade in here. Now, there's more travel for NBA. It's I think it's a harder schedule. So the super famous ex-NBA player is probably less likely to do it. But for the most part, you know, with, with NBA caller guys and every time they've tried to shoehorn in the legends, they've usually been either bad or like really hilariously bad, right? They've the yeah. Isaiah Thomas, Magic, people like that. Um, at the same time, I think Dwayne Wade is good. I really Green. do. I, th- I think I actually, he's, he's a solid studio guy. He's not great. He's solid. But as a game guy, I think he's really good. He's quick. He's funny. Like I enjoyed him in the all-star game but they're never going to be able to convince him to be the game guy. And they don't really care because people aren't necessarily watching for the announcers, which is weird because they're talking almost more in the NBA than they do in, in NFL. But like, you the know, ESPN said, the game? yeah, I think, NBA, I think NBA announcers, you could argue, are taught the color guy because there's more dead time, right? There's less commercials. There's more like, um, fat, there's free throws where you just have to kill time for like 90 seconds. Yeah, I always think of it as a play-by-play announcer sport, though. NBA. Like, yeah, the guy in charge is Mike Breen. That's the voice of the game. Yeah, you're right. So, good point. So, that maybe the play-by-play guy is even more important with NBA. Because you yeah, really so. feel it. You really feel it if somebody's not steering the car correctly in NBA. Yeah, and we got a lot of really great NBA play-by-play guys right now. We got yeah, maybe what, we got Breen, we got Kevin Harlan, we got Ian Eagle. I mean, I don't you don't look at that list and go, hey, we're we're not being well served here, right? There's a bunch of them. Yeah, I agree. Whereas football, Burkhardt, I think, could do the Fox thing. Um, okay. let's we'll take a break. Let's come back and talk about uh Sean Payton. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident? and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need. 
Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others, real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Okay, so two coaches were thrown around as possible color guys. Sean Payton, Sean McVay. Sean McVay took his name out of the ring. Sean McVay, we have evidence, could actually potentially be good at this because he did a podcast for us, Flying Coach with Peter Schrager, ironically for the ringer. But if you listen to that podcast, you're like, oh, this guy could do this. Like, there's no question this guy could be a talking head and be really good at it. Sean Payton, a little more suspicious. And I always go back to something we've discussed many times on this podcast, on my old Grant One podcast. Um, the press conferences and the interviews are usually the indicator in football and in basketball if there's something there or not. I've never come away from a Sean Payton anything thinking, Ah, oh, get this guy in the booth. I'm not saying he's bad, but it's never been a get this guy in the booth thing, which was the argument with Breeze last year, where it's like, Breeze, big bidding war for Breeze. Like, really? Watch Breeze <laughs> get interviewed? I don't get this. And then he did the games and he was bad. So the Peyton thing, I don't know if he'd be bad. I don't think he would be that good, especially if he feels like he's going to get a job in a couple of years. The best case scenario I can think of this for him would be when Pat Riley was the studio guy for NBC with Costas. I think yeah. for either a year or two years. And he was good. And it, it wasn't a case of like, I am being cautious because I might have my next job, whatever. Danny Ainge is another one. Danny Ainge was good when he announced, even though he knew he'd be a GM or a coach. I think Peyton is clearly going to coach. I just can't see him being super critical during NFL games, not to mention, I'm not sure how much of a personality he is either. So I'm thumbed, thumbs down for this. Where, where did you stand? Yeah, I think you hit on the problem, which is when the coaches get the announcing job, they're just auditioning for their next coaching job. You know, so they like don't Mark say, like Mark, Mark Jacksonitis. Yeah, I mean, it's a so you're sitting there going, you're, you don't actually care about broadcasting. You're using the booth as like your LinkedIn page <laughs> right. to get your next job. I was, you know, I was flipping through Al Michaels's memoir the other day because I was writing about him for the Super Bowl. And there's this whole scene where Bill Parcells almost became the color guy for Monday Night Football in 1999. I think it was after Boomer Esiason. And Al had yeah. this conversation with him where he's like, you know what? You can't use this as your halfway house between your coaching jobs. He just quit the Jets. Like, that's totally unfair to us because this is our job. Like, we, <laughs> we want to be good at this. Right. And, of course, Parcells, even when he was coaching, would use a coaching job as a halfway house to his next coaching job as you know all too well. Like, he was always playing the next move. Parcells didn't wind up doing it, and he winds up going to coach the Cowboys a few years later. That's what all these guys do. 
So unless it's truly a John Madden where it's like, I quit early, I'm done, I'm never going back to the sideline. I don't, I don't want that guy. I think Jeff Van Gundy qualifies for that too, because I think he knew he wasn't coaching anymore. He's not. And going I think back. he's no. he's more candid than uh, than maybe maybe I think people realize because he knows. Whereas Mark Jackson, I think there are lines he's not going to cross because he I think still ultimately wants to coach again. It's the Parcells thing is a good example because I used to love his radio show. He used to do a radio show with Will McDonough. Uh, that they used to run in Boston. And I used to listen to it on Fridays because it would help me with gambling because Parcells would drop these gems and he'd be like, I don't like the way they match up. I don't think they can back and be like, whoa, that actually bore out. So I would go out of my way to listen to it. That was, that was, uh, I think it was, I think that was right around the same time you're talking about with the TV stuff. I think, I think it was late nineties. God, I can't remember. But we've seen these big coaches come in all the time. We saw Bill Walsh. Yep. George, George Seifert was the funniest because I still, <laughs> it's on YouTube. I don't know. Did I send that to you? You did. Yeah. Yeah. It was CBS's first year. It was Nance, Marcus Allen, who was just the classic upright, using his hands guy. Uh, George Seifert, who quickly lost interest by week three. And then Brent Jones, who's one of the worst studio guys we've ever had <laughs> in any sport. And it was the most awkward. It's on YouTube. You could go watch it. But for the most part, the coach thing, Dungy's okay. It's like a... B He's minus okay. C plus. He's, He's okay. okay. He's solid. The cowards. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Rex Ryan's like, yeah. But for the most part, we haven't seen these coaches in the NFL come in and be good. You know what I've really loved about the last month or so of broadcasting news is the wondering out loud about my future element of it. Sean Payton's done a lot of wondering out loud about my future. Yeah. Sean McVay did a lot. I saw a clip with Charles Barkley the other day going, you know what? I, I, I've said before, I may not be doing it inside the NBA when I'm 60. He's 59 right now. I don't yep. know if I'm going to be doing that. Troy Aikman has been wondering out loud about his future for like three or four years. Maybe I'm going to go run a team. I don't know. Maybe I called my last game at Fox. And when I hear that, now maybe some of these people are truly torn about what they're going to do. But when I hear that, I translate that as, hey, I'm here. Uh, you want to yeah. hire me, right? Uh, you want to want to get in on the bidding for this? Want to improve my current contract? Want to give me a brand new contract? Make it I worth mean, my while. Did you did you ever wonder aloud about your future at ESPN? Did you have one of those? After I got suspended, I was getting a lot of, you know, requests to talk, and I I didn't talk to anybody. But I I I was in a different situation though because we had people working for us and people. You know, I had people that were attached to me. So I, I felt like if you're just on your own and nobody's attached to you, I, I can see how you would do the look at me thing. Yeah. Like, right you, here, you, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I might have written my last trade value column. <laughs> That's it. That could have been it. <laughs> we'll never know who the trade value guy is next year. We'll never know what my terrible picks are. Yeah, I, uh, I, I actually do believe Barkley that he might be done. Really? He's been doing it for 20 plus years. Yeah. I can, really? I can, I think he would leave early instead of late. And I think he's made enough money. So but he's just, he just bored with it. Like he doesn't care about it anymore. Yeah. Sometimes he seems bored. Other times he's still the best. Like, like even, uh, the other night, the Brooklyn game and Brooklyn's getting wiped out by the Celtics and you go to the halftime and Barkley's like, Hey man, like I like some of the pieces on this Brooklyn team. Like watch out when Kyrie and KD come back. Because 
there's there's stuff here. Like there, this is good that they're like he just zagged in a way that I was like, ah, good one. He still has that in him, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, countdown now that that you, you, you should do a usage rate piece about countdown. <laughs> it's like Greeny, 25 minutes set up for the segment, Stephen A, two minutes, Wilbon a minute, Jalen 20 seconds, back to Greeny to wrap it up. Then Stephen A comes back in for another 30. He, I mean, Stephen A's like Westbrook in 2017 on OKC with the usage rate. Whereas the TNT, the ball still moves in the right ways, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I, I and Barkley's still good at it. But I, I so you don't think, you don't agree? I think well, he would leave too early rather than too late. I think maybe, but I always just go back to the TV thing you and I have talked about with Madden and all these other guys. Nobody really walks away from television. Right, until it's like you're kind of getting half shoved out the door. Yeah, or all Madden, the way shoved out the door. I thought Madden the last like maybe two years was definitely slipping. Like there's no question. He was, he wasn't, I mean, again, he was such he a He wasn't high, Madden anymore. Yeah, it was. Yeah, but if you watch, I went back and watched the last Super Bowl he did with Al and he was still really good. Right. And he could have come back. He was like a B plus. He wasn't yeah, an A plus, he was a B plus. And he was John Madden, so he could have come back for one more deal. But very rarely do people walk away from television. And again, when I hear it, I don't know. I don't know. May have called my last game. I just, I read that as, or I at least ask the question, is this negotiating? You know, is this me? You know, maybe, maybe Barkley's really torn about this. But when I read that, man, there's, there's a lot of wondering out loud right now about all this stuff. And if Sean Payton, by the way, gets a broadcasting job, he's going to be wondering out loud about whether he's going to coach the Cowboys next year or what he's going to do with his life. And again, I read that as a message to future employers. Hey, over here. You know what's interesting about that? I think I'm year to year at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Am I doing this a year from now? I'm not positive. <laughs> Had a really fun ride. Great career. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Could this be it for me and Sal? Um, I have a name to throw at you for football that never gets mentioned. And I don't really understand it. And I actually think he's become severely underrated. Care to guess? Football. This is a current person? Wanna, yeah, want to play 20 questions? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Mike Tomlin's over-mentioned, so it's not him. No, it, somebody he's, he's in the coaching, league right yeah. now. Somebody who's announcing right now. Oh, who's announcing right now? Yeah, he's an announcer right now. And you feel is undervalued. He's in the media right now. And I think he's the most undervalued guy for this discussion. If we're talking Romo, Collins, or Aikman. And he's announcing, he is actually calling football games or in a studio? No, he's a media media person okay. right now. So there's the tell. Okay, so I'm, I'm, now I'm going through like the serious XM NFL channel. Like where, where, where are you finding people? I'll just Hot. give it to you. I okay. think Boomer's really good at games. Oh, should we bring Boomer back? I think he's legitimately good. I don't know if you've ever been in the car listening to him announce a game on the radio. He's one of the best guys. Like it just hands down, he is. He had the huge radio run with Marv. Remember where he did Monday Night Football with him for a long time? I just think he's really good. And for some reason, I, I think he's the best. He's the only guy, if if I'm trapped under a boulder and forced to watch that five-man CBS pregame show, <laughs> Boomer's the one guy where I'm like, I'm kind of interested in his takes. Um, but when you hear him announce, he's really good. He breaks shit down. He's, to me, like on the Collinsworth level. And I think for some reason, maybe he doesn't want to travel for the games or whatever, but that's a guy. If I was Amazon or Fox, and I want, I still want a big name because I do think he's a big name. Was it I don't just think the, it's as big a name as Aikman, but he's a big name. Was it just the bad experience with Al? Was that why he never 
quite got like another game run like that in a big time spot. When are you doing the oral history of what the hell happened to Alan Boomer? Because that's like one of the best media feuds that we've had. Yeah, I, I think they kind of did it out loud in real time. But I yeah, think... <laughs> happy to go back and just go back, do the anniversary piece. You know, when I interviewed Al the other day on the podcast, he said he thought it was because Boomer had retired too soon. And he really wanted to play more football. And that so he was it's an interesting one when we talk about guys coming off the sidelines to be announcers. He actually was like, oh, maybe I did it a smidge too soon. Hmm. Well, I, I think he's good. My guess is he's, you know, he's the fan, W fan morning guy. He's on the CBS show, probably making good coin and that he's probably happy. But uh, out of all the dudes out there, I, I think that's the one that has the upside of the, of the people who are in the league. To me, it's Tomlin and Phil Rivers. If we're really going to be like, who can actually be good? Tomlin will be, Tomlin will be good at whatever he wants to be at. But if he wanted to be an announcer, he'd be great. And then Rivers is just sitting there for somebody, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then I think Peyton Manning would be really good at it. Yes. I don't think there's any question. And I would rather he did that than the Manning cast, but, um, but it doesn't seem like they'll ever do the travel. Now, who could rule out like them doing private jets every week and making it super easy for them? Don't you My think, guess by the is way, they're trying to put together a business though. So I don't, I don't, I, it actually makes more sense for him to do the Manning cast stuff. Yeah. And the Manning cast for UFC and all that other stuff. Don't you, don't you think by the way, Fox, if now they have an opening, is just calling everybody. It's possible. Well, I heard Tom Brady's name mentioned and I, I didn't know if that was serious or not because I, all due respect to the goat. Thanks for the six Super Bowls. He's not going to be a good announcer. He won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it. I think he'll be too careful. I, th I think he'd be too worried about backlash. And I, I think it would be a little like that Joe Montana style of just kind of being paralyzed because you don't want to actually say anything. I don't think he'd be good. You didn't see enough in Tom versus time. He's actually pretty good when he talks about himself. I just don't think he'd be critical of other, other players. Who do we think's on the list? This is what I want to get from you. So if you're Fox right now, you have an opening, you have Greg Olson sitting there. But let's make let's do the let's make 10 phone calls just to check. Who's your 10 phone calls? Brady's probably a phone call. That's Tom. Tomlin's my first. OK. Hey, Tomlin, you don't have a quarterback. Just take two years off. Reboot. Here's 40 million for two years. And uh, and you could go back to coaching. Phil Rivers phone call. Oh, yeah. Yes. 100 percent. Has it gotten too weird or is Aaron Rodgers a phone call? I don't think he is. Cross off? I think Pat McAfee is. Ooh. Just Pat McAfee? Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting one. I always, Could, for some reason, I thought of him as part of a three-man. Yeah. Could it be Burkhart, Burkhart Olsen and Pat McAfee? Or Burkhart, <laughs> Charles Davis and Pat McAfee? I don't know. Okay. Anybody else? That, again, they could be around. They could be coaching or playing right now, but it's just, uh, just checking in, just seeing if you've had any ideas about being an announcer. Adrian Peterson, no. Um, Moss? I don't know. Too, too kind of distinct. Do you, you have to have a color guy where you can kind of slide into the game. 
Yeah. He might be too distinct for that. Rex Ryan, same thing. Too distinct of a personality where you kind of overpower the game. Yeah, Yeah. I can tell you Rex Ryan feelings. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting list though, right? Because it's kind of a nothing to lose moment where you just reach out to everybody. Well, I know, I, I remember when ESPN was trying to replace Gruden, they, that's what they did. And somehow they ended up with Jason Witten. Yeah. Well, they, 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 ESPN's called a lot of people. Let's not forget before the Eggman thing, ESPN called Tony Romo. That's how Tony Romo got to 18 million. ESPN also called Peyton Manning at least once before the Manning cast and said, Hey, we we're ready. We're, we're, this is, here's the job. Didn't work. The other thing is Amazon is just, talk about look at me like i mean we've been hearing about their plans and things have been getting leaked for nine months at this point how come they don't have anybody so this is this is the question i want to ask you about that thursday night football and monday night football to me should feel like fun bonus football yep like thursday night got really good when buck and aikman sort of made it like the comedy roast night yeah in fact i think that's probably part of aikman getting better is he had a Thursday game that wasn't as important that didn't feel like the big Sunday afternoon 425 Eastern game and he could just kind of cut loose a little bit? Yeah. And I'm wondering, both for Thursday and even Monday, how do you make it feel like, how do you make it feel fun? Well, my guess with Amazon is they're going to have a bunch of alternate broadcasts, right? They'll have six different streams. They've already kind of did this when they had Hannah and... Andrea Kramer, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure they'll have the gambling version and they'll have the former players version and the home team away team. I guess they're going to have like six different. Yeah, they'll have like six different ones. What happens to the Manning cast? Where is that next year? It's right where it is. It's at ESPN still? And by the way, that's an interesting thing because, you know, I don't, you know, again, I have made a survey of everybody, but the sense I got was from the big network announcers. They didn't want to be programmed against. They found the whole idea that, wait, my network would hire Peyton Manning. Now, maybe with Troy, that's such a huge contract that just who cares yeah. at this point? You know, yep. <laughs> you could put anything against it and he'd be fine. But yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. I think the big here's my Monday night problem, which is the Monday night problem the year before and the year before, which is it feels like there's so much football on TV now. Yeah. And, and by Monday, so you're kind of limping in the finish line and you're gassed. I feel yeah. gassed by Monday night and I love pro football. And is there a way, if, if you just put Buck and Aikman, will we all just perk up enough, or Al and Aikman, and will we perk up enough and say, okay, we're here, right? This is this feels big time. This feels like a huge game. Are we just going to be tired by Monday, by Monday night? I think with a much better announcing crew, you perk up a little bit. We haven't seen that from Monday Night Football ESPN really since Madden was on it. Last question, then we'll go. If Buck does go to ESPN, that sets a nice little ripple effect within the ESPN infrastructure, <laughs> right? <laughs> Baseball, golf. Like, what yeah. happens to Van Pelt? Who's the point man on the Masters? Ooh, that's is that a Joe good Buck? Question. Yeah. Now the- Scott Van Pelt. If Scott Van Pelt, does he get salty if he if he has to share it? <laughs> well, Joe's not, been that off- not a very salty guy, but I'm, I'm just trying to start drama. Yeah, that's good. This is another you're you're doing the right thing. I like your instincts here. I mean, I I think the salary thing is actually the biggest thing at ESPN. Yeah, Van Pelt's like, I've created this nighttime sports center franchise for you. Now you're bringing this guy in. He's going to work forty dates and make more money than I do. Yeah, well, we, I think we all got to a point where like, okay, Stephen A is the acknowledged MVP of ESPN. 
12-ish million dollars. Oh, whoops. Uh, Troy Aikman, $18 million. Yeah, what's Stephen A going to do? Joe Buck, more than $12 million, let's say. So all of a sudden, you just reset the thing. And remember with ESPN versus all these other places we're talking about, they just have more people working there. So, you know, it may not just be like, I'm the most valuable person at ESPN, but if I'm down the list and still very valuable, if I'm Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet, I'm looking at these salaries going, oh, is that the new going rate we're paying for the big time announcer? They'd have to worry about Van Pelt, Stephen A., Fowler, Herbstreet. Would be the and I four. wouldn't blame any of them for thinking that. They're like, you, you just reset the bar. You just told us that this is what these jobs are worth. I know the NFL is on a separate planet and all that stuff, but we work for the same company. I mean, that's what happened with the Romo deal. Everybody started looking around and going, why am I not making that much money? It'd be like when ESPN hired Rick Riley. <laughs> Paid him a shitload of money. It's like there are some other people that work for the company that are like, wait a second, I've been kicking this guy's ass for years. What's going on? Can you uh, can you clarify who might have been thinking that at the I time? I just heard through the through the oh, grapevine. Oh, there gotcha. are people saying that. Uh, Brian Curtis, we can hear in the press box doing good stuff with the Ukrainian <laughs> conflict lately. Uh, not not the most uplifting content on the press box, but important stuff, especially with how this is being reported and between your pod and uh, and Derek Thompson's plain English pod. I think we've done a really nice job of kind of explaining what's what's been going on in the last week or so. So good work with that. Um, I look forward to seeing your new bookshelf in person. We got to compare your, notes new here, right? Yeah, we got to compare notes. It'll be Best good. American sports writing, 1954. <laughs> That's pretty you good. You got it. Because <laughs> I got it. <laughs> we'll do a draft. All right, good to see you. See you, Bill. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay, that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Spring, the best time of the year to dial your fitness routine up a notch. You know it's going to happen. It's going to get warm. going to start wearing shorts. going to start wearing bathing suits. Just, you're not going to be able to cover up behind those big coats anymore. Also, it's nice outside. Get outside, do stuff. Or if you don't have time to get outside, I got Peloton for you. Whether you have five or 60 minutes, Peloton's workouts were made to challenge you. Classes like boot camps, full body strength, boxing, marathon training are created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in and you won't feel bad about not being outside. Peloton's expert coaches, challenging classes, and nonstop vibes will keep you coming back for more. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. All right, it's time for the Euphoria end of the season award. Season two just happened. It became a phenomenon for HBO. It was the second most watched show since 2004, the first being Game of Thrones. It was getting like 16 to 19 million people per episode, including... Everyone in high school, everyone in college. I think it's the biggest under 22 
show since I've known my daughter, Zoe Simmons. I would say over 22 as well. Yeah, but especially like high especially, school, college. Sure. But it, I mean, this has hit people of all age ranges. So what happened? You think it was the pandemic started it and people caught up to season one and were ready? Like why, why was mean, it so much bigger? It did have the advantage of having the pandemic and allowing people to catch up with the episodes and binge them. But I also feel like Zendaya has become probably the biggest actress in the world because of Spider-Man. The new one came out and that was ginormous. Like that got more streams or views than Avatar. Yeah. Which is insane because Avatar is one of the biggest movies ever. So Zendaya being the lead character in this show definitely helped. And I think people caught up on HBO Max. I heard from a friend of mine at HBO that Euphoria's audience was like 80% HBO Max because your generation doesn't even know when things are on. They just know they go on the yeah. on the streamer. I mean, it's it's unfair, the life we live. So leisure filled. Unfair or fair? Unfair for everyone. No, unfair for everyone else, I mean, because yeah. I could just, I can enter any app and watch whatever show I want without having to wait most of the time. That's what was great about Euphoria. You could just binge through it during the pandemic. So why did the show hit? What happened? What What made it go to another level? Explain it to us. I mean, I feel like the majority of our viewers are people in high school, just out of high school, in college, just out of college. And through the pandemic, we were really robbed of all experiences of high school. So having a TV show as we're re-entering the real world, that basically explains everything go that goes on in high school and in college to the fullest. Wait a second. I mean, this... I would hope this does that explain everything oh, from it high does. school. The show's insane. I, it is insane. And I... You could say that a lot of it is exaggerated, which it is. But the premise, like the true core of this TV show is completely accurate to the way that high school is. Explain. I mean, I I feel like parents are so oblivious, even though everyone was kids at some point. Now that we have technology, it's a whole new wave of being a teenager. Everything is different now. Everything is more accessible to people who use drugs like Rue. I mean, that's more of an old style thing where she has her dealer and she goes yeah. to Fez and he has this little shop. But nowadays it's like you Snapchat your dealer and he's at your house in 10 minutes. Your dealer? Not my dealer. <laughs> Not my dealer. I'm off the drugs, guys. <laughs> You're never on the I'm drugs. I'm never on the drugs. Jesus. That's, you, none of you heard any of that. I might have but to it's, Kyle edit this. This is terrible. <laughs> I'm well, not you, the stuff that really resonates with you is like the love triangle stuff. Yeah, and- the love triangles. The, this is the only TV show, and I can say that confidently. I know you love the OC, and I mean like yeah. The Bachelor and Bachelorette and all those types of shows that highlight love triangles, relationships, and etc. This is the show that truly shows the toxicity of some relationships how some people just absolutely are not meant to be together. Like it really dives into all of that. It's super raw and it's real and it may be exaggerated, but it does show some components of relationships and how toxic that they can get. And it's it was ahead of the curve with the gender identity stuff. That yeah, has become oh, totally. It's super everywhere. prevalent. And I feel like that everyone is watching the show right now, which is also helping that entire, not wave because it's not a wave, but that, knowingness and awakening of this entire. So what's your favorite thing about this show? That's a, that's a loaded question. I just feel like as a teenager, my favorite thing is being able to watch a show that explains in some 
form. In some fucked up form. Fucked up form. Like really morphed form the way that high school is and the way that life really is. And I feel like it's showing parents and other people out in the world who may not understand teenagers what it really is like to be a teenager nowadays. Except for the drugs. Except, but not except for the drugs. I mean, on my part, I'm a rare part of people who don't do drugs, but I mean, that's extremely prevalent. And maybe not hard drugs like the stuff that Rue takes. I would hope that. I'd, I would hope not as well. But I mean, I, I could be completely oblivious and there could be people out there taking that stuff all over. Like, you never know. Stay oblivious. Stay oblivious. Explain before we get, you're going to do the uh, awards for season two, but explain how TikTok took this show to another level, like with your generation. I mean, TikTok takes everything to another level. But specifically, Euphoria got caught definitely during the pandemic. When it first came out, it was popular, but it wasn't the way that it is now. During the pandemic, because everyone had so much time on their hands, along with whipped coffee and other things like that, Euphoria looks were huge. Like doing these videos to one of the music sounds of just you doing your eye makeup in a transition, like Euphoria became an aesthetic. Sam Levinson actually said that he didn't like that it became an aesthetic because he did that to enhance the show in itself. But TikTok just took it and ran with it and Euphoria became an entire type of fashion. That was another piece that happened with the show, the Sam Levinson factor and how polarizing he became with people who didn't like his decisions for characters and were upset that so-and-so isn't on the show as much or why did he do this? Like He almost became a character. Sam Levinson is like a dictator. He yeah. is a character. Sam Levinson is everyone. Rue is Sam Levinson. Yeah. Rue is Sam Levinson. Lexi is Sam Levinson. Jules is Sam Levinson. This show is Sam Levinson in every single form that he is. That is what it's, I wouldn't call it narcissistic. It's genius almost because he's, he's a confusing person and he used all these different types of characters to encapsulate all of his personalities and all of the struggles that he went through as a white cis male who chose a... Well, it's true. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I didn't you, know you were dropping lingo on me. No, I'm not. But a, a white cis male who chose to make a black young woman yeah. the main character in his show. And they, but they shared some similarities. They did. A, a and drug issue and all yeah, those other things. And all of that. So I think he's a genius. He might be a slightly flawed genius, but this was all one geniuses of the, are slightly flawed. Well, this is one of the most creative TV shows of the century at the very least. But yeah. um, even when the show misses, it still feels like it hits. Like I thought the season finale was all over the place. I loved watching it. I mean, that's, that's part of what Lexi said in her play. When Cassie got extremely upset that her life was being broadcasted in front, in front of a bunch of people, um, Lexi said, not all art has to, you know, like not everyone has to love your art. Right. Like well, that this, was Fezco's advice to her. Well, that was Fezco's, yeah. But she said in front of the whole stage, like, sometimes you have to hurt people to make good art. And that's true. And that's, I mean, that just translates ex exactly to what Sam Levinson is trying to do with the show. Mm. So. Fezco, just full of wisdom. <laughs> you know dealer. what? Just has a lot you know of wisdom, what? Like, every other day, the weed might have gotten to his brain, but he pulls out some really important lines. All right, Euphoria Awards. Comeback of the Year Award goes to? Lexi. Season one, Lexi wasn't that huge of a character. She was just kind of there. She was Rue's, like, former best friend who Rue ended up using for 
to cover up her drug usage. Yeah. And Lexi just wasn't a huge part of the show. She was a comforting character that you could look back on and be like, all right, well, at least there's one normal person yeah, throughout this euphoria world. She show. was like, she normalized the show. But this season, she became a really important element, and not even until the last half, like the last four episodes. We knew that she was creating this play that would explain her entire life. I honestly didn't pay any attention to it. I just saw her with her little notepad and pen at Maddie's birthday party when Cassie had the entire throw-up scene and at school when, you know, Cassie was strutting down the halls with Nate. Like, she had her pen and her notepad and no one knew what was going to happen. And then Lexi just pulled out this incredible masterpiece of euphoria, explained and just completely... Easily the best high school play anyway. I mean, like, it's if I so. Went to one, a crossroads I, play, and it was like it was anything was even close to yeah. that. That would be incredible. It, the, probably the best play that anyone has ever seen. So that's Judd Apatow's oldest daughter. She's Maud, super talented, and she's been in a couple of his movies as like a little kid. And then when yeah. I saw, and she was in a Pete Davidson movie a few years ago. But then when I saw her in this, I was like, oh, interesting. Like she has some real depth to her. Yeah, I thought the last couple episodes, it was like, wow, she's a really good actress. And she's a really good actress. Yeah. And like her entire situation with Fezco and the way that she was able to express herself through this play as Sam Levinson did with this show. There's just some good translating lines there. And I, I felt like she completely played this character perfectly. Good job by her. Uh, all right, saddest moment of the season. This is a show that'll get sad from time to time. Uh, and from time to time, I feel like every scene is just heart-wrenching, really. Okay. There isn't one unsad scene. Well, but... give me the two sad. All right, the top two. Ashtray getting shot was mm. just, we all felt it coming. I saw a few TikTok comments before the finale came out. If Ashtray gets shot, this is all on Faye. I'm not watching the show again. If Ashtray or Fezco dies, Everyone knew it People was. People love Ashtray, the homicidal they, little brother. He's so dealer. he's incredible. He's the best. He's just he loves stabbing people and killing people and what playing. A guy. A, he's, you know what? I, I think it's always shell shocking to murder a little kid on a TV show, especially in the way that they did it, where, you know, the house was getting raided by an FBI and police officers, and Ashtray's just laying in the bathtub with an yeah. array of weapons, Smart. and just you know shooting them at a bunch of high-tech soldier-type people. Yeah. Didn't know if that was the best move by him, but I understand why that was the decision and why Sam Levinson had to kill him off, but it's always shocking to kill little kids. Just, it's a rough one. If you brought home a friend named Ashtray, I'd be concerned. I think that's a red that flag in itself. Point. All right, other saddest moment. Rue's little sister, Gia, finding out that Rue was using again. Hmm. There was a lot of controversy because... You know, Rue in her fucked up mind having this like, I need to manipulate everyone around me to not thinking that I'm using drugs. So I'm going to tell my little sister that I'm just smoking some weed to help with, you know, the the addiction to help her not take drugs when in reality she's taking harder drugs to get her off of her case. Um, Gia finding out that Rue was actually using worse drugs than she had ever used and was about to kill herself was so intense just seeing all of the life pour out of her face and like she thought that Rue was finally getting better in a sense or tried to convince herself that like as an older sister watching the disappointment in Gia's face and understanding that her biggest role model Rue was actually a terrible person which yeah. she had always suspected considering the life that Rue has led but really like solidifying that in her drug usage and finding out that she was lying to everyone around her 
it was just heartbreaking. It was really, really hard to watch. She had a really good sad face too. She has a, I think she's a great actress. Character of the year. Character of the season. This one easily goes to Cassie. What and a tour de force. She puked God, in a hot tub. I hate her so much. I really hate her. She is the ultimate girl who I just would absolutely hate. Like never, ever want to be around. And I feel like this was expected. Season one, Sydney Sweeney has always been an incredible actress. She showcased that through White Lotus, through season one of Euphoria. This was a completely different performance. Yeah. I, tr- I truly haven't seen anything like it. She just fully was the most horrifying and like transcendent form of a teenage girl that anyone could be to the max. That a guy like, would want to hook up with and every girl and would then hate ne- and be And then never of. talk to again. Yeah. She's like a one and done type of situation. She's just the most terrifying character I've ever watched. She She's like the friend, becomes Lindsay Lohan's someone else. friends in Mean Girls. But she, yeah, times, but times, times 10,000. Yeah. She she has no fear. She is insane. She makes some of the craziest faces I've ever seen in some my of life. The best faces, really, some of the best. History. And she is such a beautiful young woman, Sydney Sweeney. She looks just absolutely horrific she in so from, many scenes in this TV show. Yeah, she can go from pretty to completely psychotic looking. Like, in like you a would second. never ever want to be around her ever, and just like the shift between the types of characters that she can be. She has so much variety. I, great I don't know. season. Really Every a great... she was in, it was It was so... It, she somewhere. kept the show going. Yeah, I'm with you. You thought the best episode was episode seven, which was part one... Of, of Lexi's play. play. I think I agree. I thought, especially the ending with Cassie staring through the window... And, and the just steam the steam. The oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I talked to a few friends about this, and they disagreed that this episode was just a recap of what happened throughout the entire season. No way. That was so creative. I, I think it, it was... a half hour to even understand what was going uh, on. It's it was, just... It was the most well-done play I've ever seen, and I've seen... Well, plus how they plays. would use the real characters, then they would turn yeah. into the play characters. And, and they back. would... The, just the... Some of the scenes in it, the translation between the Cassie and Maddie sleepover when Maddie's just crying yeah. her eyes out and then that turns into the stage or when mm. Cassie and Lexi were dancing with their parents in our house and then that panorama's out that to cool. it being the stage and the two actresses. It's just emotionally, it was so like, it just tore my heart out because Lexi has lived such a hard life. Plus good cliffhanger. They turned it on Nate. Yeah, they, they turned, turned it on Nathan. On oh, we'll get into that yeah, we'll later. Into but that. I mean, it's just an incredible episode of television. I never would have thought that the play would have come out so creatively and that it would have been such a whirlwind to watch. Really good creative. Set the stage. I don't think the second part was as good as the first part, but the week between the two parts. No, I think the second, I, it, the first part was definitely better. I felt yeah. a lot more invested and because it was mostly the play. The second part was more about Cassie destroying it and making it about herself as she always does. When Lexi even says after Cassie comes out before they go back on stage again and she's like, the one thing I've ever done and it becomes a disaster. I don't know, just hit home. Worst parent. This is a prestigious award for Euphoria. The worst parent of the year was? Nate's mom. Okay. This might not have been the first person that you would have thought of for yeah, the worst parent. you would have thought parent. Nate's dad. You would have thought Nate's dad. But you know what? When you truly look into this TV show and the deeper lining of it, 
Nate's dad is a really, really messed up person who has backstory as to why he's a messed up person. And Nate's mom, I guess, like being married to someone who, you know, has not been faithful to you and is a bad guy, that's hard. But after Nate's dad just leaves the family, it's like, fuck you all. You're all assholes. Like, I'm out of here. Like, you were my biggest mistake, Nate. Like, his mom is just no comfort to him. There's no like, Nate, you weren't a mistake. Like, yeah. I love you so much. Nate, you aren't my biggest a, regret. Let's go get a nice coffee. Yeah, instead, it's like she gets really drunk and high and watches him get drunk and then starts telling him that she also agrees that he was a ginormous mistake and that this entire family was a ginormous mistake and that she wished she could take it back. Arguably, like Cassie and Lexi's mom and dad could be in the running here. Yeah. But I just, I feel like Nate's mom is the worst. I hate her. I think I agree. Most redeemable character that you didn't expect to be redeemed. Faye. I mean, I when she first entered this show, I had no hope for her. I honestly wanted her to get killed off. Real life porn star. You're like, I what's mean, going on with this casting? I just didn't, I didn't get it. But then after her character development happened and she was living with Fezco and, you know, things were getting better. And on the season finale was when things really turned around for me because she was ironing Fezco's outfit or this was the end of episode seven. Yeah. She was ironing himself. It. She became forced with him. And then in episode eight, when they were trying to sell out Fezco to the police and tell them that he had killed mouse, she defended him. And she was like, didn't you tell me that Lori was the one that killed mouse? Right. And then he was like, I didn't fucking say that. And she was like, yeah, you did. And she was, she was there for Fezco. Yeah. So you know what? I think her that her, her and her lips Those were there for Fezco. We, we love you, Faye. I think she was she's a great addition to the show. Those lips, right? Oh, she is. Maybe. I've seen before and afters, but you know oh, okay. what? I love Chloe Sherry hey. and I appreciate that she Chloe, came on the show. do what you need to do. Sus of the year. Explain what sus of the year is. This Explain is your doing. What well, you use sus all the time. I thought sus could be the word. Sus means suspicious or suspects. Like, I would say dad is sus for not wearing shoes and putting his toes on the counter right now. Okay. That's sus. So sus of the year is what? Sus of the year goes to Kat just completely being cut out of this show. So the sus part is the fact that Kat was a we huge don't really, character in season one and, and she could have shoved to the and side. And she's a great actress. Yeah. She was a great addition to season one. I absolutely adored her character and there was so much more to go from there. Like the entire mysterious cat, like porn star type yeah, of thing. I love that. That, that it whole was arc great. was great. It was great. So what great. happened? Tell us the rumors. You know, so there's there are some rumors flying around that Sam Levinson and Kat's actress had a bit of an issue. Yeah. where she just did not like the way in which Kat was going. She thought it was going down too dark of a route. And no one can ever disagree with Sam Levinson. A reporter like reported that they didn't like season one of Euphoria, and then he made an entire, basically a diss track short film on that. Yeah, Just dissing that person. So Sam Levinson doesn't take criticism well. And he basically cut Kat's character out of the entire show. She could have gone in we so many rumors, directions. Hyper- Rumors. Rumored. It doesn't make sense why somebody who was one of the five most important characters of season And one, she had so many directions to go in. Like, she was a huge, vital part of their friend group. She was, like, the nonchalant, like, you know, I don't really know anything about yeah. the life that these people are leading while well, behind the scenes. I'm, like, this porn star. 
What do you? Why are you playing with your phone? I'm this tur- is so much more important. I'm turning on the do not disturb because oh. I keep getting some emails. Well, if you were a pro, you would have done that before. I know. The pot. I this know. Is why I'm embarrassed. You've given me some evil eyes. Uh, best redemption. You have it, Nate's dad for this one. Yeah. Even though he pulled it out and peed all over the living room. and <laughs> That was the moment when him. I was like, this guy's fucking awesome. He's going to jail. He that was a, the moment. He has a hard drive of all his sex conquests. You know, I don't think about that when his I think about his redemption. His son has nightmares of, of his dad having sex with him. And and that yet, was the rough this one. This is your redemption of the year. You know, I, I can't explain myself from time to time. So basically, for whatever reason, Nate's dad, a villainous guy that you were prepared not to like, and you I felt, hated you felt him. Bad for him by the end of season. Two. Okay, if you guys had seen his deep dive episode, I'm sure you all have, where it just goes into his past and what has made him the person that he is today. It's truly sad. Yeah, it is. Like the it's reason why he the is 80s. the way he is, because he is a white man who had a very masculine father who wouldn't have been accepting of his homosexuality. Yeah. And he had 80s. to, it was the 80s and he had to conceal all of that. He was in love with his friend and then he ended up getting his girlfriend pregnant. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, that's that's really mentally so hard to have to conceal something like that. Like no one could understand that but someone who has to live through that. And although I don't condone all of the things that Cal does, because he's a horrible person. With, yeah, I, yeah, obviously okay. that's terrible and filming his encounters with people and cheating on his wife. And being terrible, and being dad. a terrible dad. But somehow you felt bad. For but him. somehow I did feel bad for him because, it, I mean, I can't ever imagine having to live a lie your entire life. Right. And then he pissed on the floor, and that was great. I loved it. Funniest parent. I have I have Cassie's mom for this, and I think you do as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean Cassie and Suze. Yeah, her name is Suze. Great job by her. She's incredible. I think Ethan's reenactment of her was even better yeah. somehow. But she was just an incredible di- addition to the show. There had to be some sort of humor at some parts. Yeah. Because it's such a heavy show in every single episode. And she just always brought that. Like, especially that scene when Cassie is arguing with her that Maddie wasn't with Nate when her and Nate started having sex. And she's like, <laughs> Suze is just like, oh my God, she needs a fucking exorcism. <laughs> it's just, it was perfect. It was great. I love Suze. She's the best. Character we didn't need. Who do you have for this one? I have Lori, the female drug dealer. Don't you think she comes back in season three? Though? I think she like will, she will she will come back. I know she will come back, but but we don't understand why. She I don't understand why three. she had to be in season two for three episodes, make a really big threat to Rue that she would sell her and sex traffic her if she loses the drugs that she so kindly gifted to Rue when she knew he was, she was an addict and something bad was going to happen. Yeah. Like, and then she just dips for the rest of the season. Like, if in the finale, something had concluded there and, like, Rue had gotten kidnapped or something, although I wouldn't have wanted that to happen, she left a huge hole in the plot line where it's like, I know we're going to come back to this in season three, but there should have been some sort of res- resolution there. I think Sam has some red herring plots where he kind of Yeah, just he kind forgets. of goes off on a whim and he just, like, lets things happen and then he just doesn't clean them up. It's you like, come on, the, Sam. You didn't watch The Sopranos yet, the greatest show of all time. But uh. They had this episode where these Russian, this Russian got chased into the woods by Polly Walnuts and Christopher. Yeah. And you always thought the Russian was going to come back 
and then the show just ended. We never saw the Russian again. It's it was just, like, what happened to the Russian? He does that sometimes. He, you know, he gets carried away in the show, and then he never cleans up the the puddles. But it it works out. It's just speaking nitpicks. of Sam, your top three worst Sam Levinson decisions of season two were. All right. These had to be well thought out because Sam Levinson has made some really, really questionable but that's why decisions. The first one just has to be in the finale, probably the biggest episode, the most anticipated. He puts in a four-minute song that Elliot sings to Rue when they're rejoicing in their friendship. It's like Jason Mraz showed up. Yeah, and it's just like Ed panning Sheeran. back to, to Rue. And then to Elliot and Rue with tears in her eyes and Elliot staring at her kind of weirdly. And I know like that Labyrinth and and Zendaya collaborated yeah. on this song. And it's it's a good song, but it, it didn't have to be four minutes of the episode because these are vital, important minutes that I would have wanted to watch something else. I'm with you. All right. So that's one. What's that's one. one. Um, the Rue fu- funeral speech happened at least seven different times in both episodes seven and eight. And it's just like, come on, dude. Like, that's probably collectively like 20 minutes of Rue's funeral speech. I could probably recite it to you right now if <laughs> if you wanted me to. Um, and then your third worst decision that we didn't see the Maddie Cassie beat down in the bathroom. I mean, it's just it should have gone on for longer. Cassie has been such an asshole to Maddie this season. Yeah. I just wanted Maddie to like she did bitch slap her on the stage, which was you good. Went, what about her shoving her And then he the pushed wall. her into the wall, yeah. into the brick wall. But there should have been like a few more punches. I wanted to see Cassie get more roughed up. She deserved it. I didn't realize you were this violent. <laughs> uh, the uh, most realistic high school moment. They, see, this is why this is why you're our euphoria expert, because you notice things. I know these notice. things. So what, what was the most realistic? The Cassie's argument with her mom, which was mentioned earlier when she was trying to convince her mom that Nate and Maddie weren't hooking up when Cassie started hooking up with Nate. And Cassie just comes into the room red-faced for at least like the 10th time in the day. And we know that Suze is a raging alcoholic and she's just trying to lay down and watch her reality TV. And Cassie comes back in and she's like, well, you guys know that they weren't still together when we started having sex. And... And um, Suze is like, <laughs> she's like, oh, God damn it. Give me a break. And then Cassie just keeps going like they weren't together. And then Suze is like, Cassie. And then Lexi is like, Lexi says something about that doesn't matter. You shouldn't sleep with your best friend's ex-boyfriend who she wants to get back with. And then Cassie just says, they weren't together. And that's when Suze drops the, oh, my God, she needs an exorcism line. And it's just like, it was just perfect. Like, I haven't. I've never had an argument like that with mom because I wouldn't say that but I'm even half pretty funny with mom. as crazy as Cassie, but yeah. I could see that happening with someone out in the world. Like it had some sort of realism from how real arguments with your mom goes. So I just thought it was a good Inco- one. Incoherent. Both pe- both sides both yelling. yelling no coming, no, Cassie coming back at least six different times to continue arguing it to make her feel better. Yeah. It's just be perfect. It was perfect. The, um, Funniest moment, you have either Nate getting destroyed in the play, Rue, well, Rue um, blowing it for for Cassie, telling Maddie about Cassie and Nate. You have those two. And then um, was there any other funny ones? No, those those were were my two. two. I, I think guess Nate's dad peeing on the floor was. I mean, that was, that was, it was so funny. The hot tub puke was up there. No, no, no. No, that wasn't funny. That was disgusting. When Cal Jacobs is like 
I am who I am. <laughs> I'm doing that. Before no, the end no. of 2022, I'm just peeing <laughs> all over the living room. Suze goes, put your penis away, Cal. And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I thought that Nate being completely obliterated by Ethan was so funny because Ethan needed some sort of redemption yeah. from the way that um, Kat just absolutely gaslighted him during their breakup, which was just honestly horrible, yet so realistic. Yeah. I just I thought it was incredible the entire locker room thing the the jizzing weird thing was just it was great I loved it some and quick then, ones yeah Rue out and Cassie was also incredible that was my favorite moment of this season yeah when Rue Rue's like last move they were in her yeah she's about she, to go to rehab she was uh, just caught from her like ten mile run yeah. all around Los Angeles and then oh my God Rue's line so when did she start fucking Nate it's crazy great stuff. We'll rip through these. Most unrealistic relationship. It's got to be Fezco and Lexi. Just would never happen. Lexi is too goody, goody, perfect. Yeah, and Fezco is a drug dealer. Not it just wouldn't happen. You thought the biggest missing puzzle piece of season two was a friendly cop? Explain. I just think that every TV show like this deserves a friendly cop. That's kind of like the insider. Like, you know, he knows too much and he kind of has a hint of what's going on, but he doesn't have enough evidence yet. Like, he would have been best friends with Cal and not even known that Cal was mm. doing all this illegal stuff under the radar. Yeah. I just, I just feel like that piece was missing. We should have had some more authoritative figure. Or it was like Rue's cousin. Rue's cousin? Yeah, I'm just trying to think like... Like more family members for Rue? Yeah, just like he's like Rue's second cousin, so he's looking out for her. Maybe like a Jules brother or sister brother. to give insight yeah. on the mom. You had most beautiful scene Rue in the church. I agree with that. Incredible. You have most unrealistic high school moment. I'll give you the nominees. The lack of any teachers at all. It just it wasn't a real school. The lack of all sports. Also, just super unrealistic. There should have been a homecoming game or something where everyone was getting high under the bleachers. <laughs> the, the, uh, no, none of the girls slobby dressed. I don't know what that means, but explain. Oh, well, no, not slobby dress. I mean, obviously, it's part of the aesthetic that the Euphoria characters come to school in full form and uniforms in their like wonderful wonderfully incredibly slutty clothing yeah. and slutty not in a bad way slutty in like the best way possible yeah. but I mean at my school most days everyone is wearing sweatpants and a hoodie like it's just we're never ever dressed like that and obviously that's that's an obvious choice but it's just unrealistic yeah, that's in itself. Why it's a TV show and then you said the dude's clothes are from 10 years ago I, I don't know. It's just like the way that Nate Drace dresses. I mean, some of it is realistic, but you should see the way that Ben Simmons dresses with his BB belts and his really oversized shirts. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't compare Ben Simmons to anybody. You're right. Uh, top penis you didn't need to see in God, season two? I didn't know that that's what we called it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the finalists are Nate's dad and the guy in the strip joint. That's my winner. Yeah, this the guy in the that strip joint like the with the, season two. the floppy genitals. No one had to see it. It did not have to happen. Strangest LA location? 
the mystery gay bar that, <laughs> that just ne- makes that flashback. He takes this long drive. And, and this is not to, this is not to say that there's no gay bars because I'm sure in no, West Hollywood they're all over, but not in a rural location off of like the PCH or something. Like there's no gay bar he like takes that. A Fifteen minute ride. All of a sudden he's in like he's he, in a he's parking in like the, lot. The and the gay bar looks like an sir. old saloon from like the, the 1800s. That is no part of Los Angeles I've ever seen. Nate's lowest moment with a gun. Oh, this was a rough one when Nate's he just had a lot of bad gun. He's moments. had a lot of bad gun moments, but definitely when he snuck into Maddie's house and held the gun to her head and then to his head and was like cocking it when he knew there so were no get the draft. That was yeah, stupid. I didn't like crazy. that. Crazy. Um, the Sam Levinson. Season two heat check award <laughs> goes to, I think we both agree on this one, Rue's police chase when Rue was, uh, Rue who's a drug addict and who he, can't have any stamina or she, oxygen. We saw her biking with Jules a few episodes ago and she couldn't even go a block, but somehow she can run 10 miles from police officers, from she's like house owners. Yeah. She's hopping fences. She's jumping in a pool. She's getting obliterated by like, trees like i just didn't get it fending off dogs whole thing the uh oh this is a good one most outrageous thing that actually could have happened in high school so this you have cassie dressing like maddie after she starts hooking that was insane because the jealousy this is the thing that can happen this fully could happen and even subconsciously obviously cassie was doing this because she had tried every single thing she could to get Nate's attention back after he was he claimed he was done with her and so she finally just started dressing like the girl that she thought he actually loved and then she ended up getting his attention so she just basically tried to take over Maddie's persona so you feel like this could actually happen this could for sure happen if a girl is trying to get a guy who's like desperate enough to, to do that it would happen the character who ran out of gas award this is going to to, you had Jules for this. You don't. What do oh. we do with Jules? Where does where does the Jules? I hate go? Jules. I haven't liked Jules since her special episode on during Christmas. That was like one I of liked her characters. first season, and then what happened? I just realized that her character is extremely annoying in every scene that she's in, and I think that Hunter Schaefer is so talented, like a great actress, but her character in this show just annoys me so much because she's so detrimental to Rue. Yeah, And I think I hold Rue very close to my heart because I feel so bad for her and for the life that she's led. And Jules only makes her worse and then goes off and starts like hooking up with Elliot. Yeah, that's And tough. it's just like, come on, dude, like you suck. Get off the show. So Jules, you think it's over or is there any sort of redemption possibility in season three? She just had no plot line. Her entire character just revolves around making Rue's life more miserable. So if they it's give her tough. a new plot, then maybe. I think, if she had died in a car accident at the end of this season, if she, two, if Nate, okay. if Nate's dad's car had oh, hit had, her, a drunk driving Nate's dad accident had yeah. hit Jules, just Jules' side, yeah. and Elliot and Rue survived in the back would have been great. <laughs> uh, house and Euphoria that most needed a dog. Whose house? This one easily goes to Rue. Needs like a gold retriever. And Gia's house, just because, one, it could have sniffed out the drugs probably earlier mm. than any, anyone else could have. And I feel like Gia just needs a hug and a golden retriever would have brought in some smiles to her face. Funniest Sam Levinson quirk of season two. This is this goes to the, the timeline. 
So I, we don't know. There's don't just know. no consistency with him? this man. Like backwards? we're we're at one point we are at New Year's, and then at the end of the season, Rue's talking about how she's been clean for the rest of the school year. So we just don't know where we're gonna end up. But he messes up this timeline at least seven different times during the season and no one can keep up with it. And I'm fine with it because when I'm watching Euphoria, nothing is realistic. Yeah. So it's like, it's not a big deal. But if, as was said on the Prestige podcast yeah, by Joanna, yeah, if you're gonna not have a realistic timeline, stop talking about the timeline. Right. Just stop doing it. Like, don't bring it up if you're not gonna keep it consistent. It's well, just a bad move by Sam. I think this is, also his part of just doing things on a whim and kind of going into the the because that's the kind of director that he is he just does things on the fly and that's why it's so beautiful he's a genius but well he's gonna have a problem soon his characters are gonna be yeah more than real life soon yeah so i don't know where you go from here I mean, but i has think like a five o'clock shadow <laughs> he's like almost he needs to start keeping i've seen a few men at my school who could look like nate Okay. Facial wise, no one's six five in high school. <laughs> <laughs> if they're six five, they're like one hundred and thirty five pounds. Yeah, they don't look like Nate yeah, Jacobs. They're not fold out. Um, and then we have, I think that's it. We're we're up to season three predictions. predictions. Oh, I guess we the unresolved plot of season two is Maddie, Maddie, and, and, the and lady yeah, by, and, uh, and Minka. Lights. What's her name? Minka Kelly. Minka from Kelly. Lights, yeah. I thought that there's a lot of directions this could go in. There was a lot of conspiracies on TikTok that there was some sexual tension there, but we found out that she's more of a motherly figure for Maddie. Mm, but like it, st it still felt there. kind of kind of weird. So we'll see where that one goes. Three predictions. We got to go. All right. Um, I think that Lori giving. Um, Zendaya the suitcase knowing that she was going to mess it up somehow and telling her that she was going to kidnap her if she did so I think that Lori is going to bail out Fezco from jail because there's no way Fezco remains in jail for the entire season he's too vital she's going to bail him out and then she's going to have Rue kidnapped already and she's going to be like she's going to use that to blackmail Fezco in some way my worst case scenario for Fezco in jail is multiple scenes with Lexi visiting him in jail I just don't want to see just, it. I don't want to see it. Just, show me now. Just get Fezco out of jail. No one wants yeah, to see him in jail. Him out. Bail him out. We want him to, to be the in the episode, even if he has severe trauma from seeing his little yeah, brother getting obliterated by him. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bad person. You're um, a bad person. A bad person. Um, any death predictions for season three? I hope that Jules and Elliot and... Nate's dad. Nate's, like a, no, I don't want Nate's dad to die. Car, I love. He's just going to be in jail. I hope that Jules and Elliot get into a conjoined plane crash. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then Nate's thirtieth birthday party. What is that going to look like? <laughs> you think? Hopefully, Cassie's not throwing up in a hot tub. <laughs> what happens with Cassie and Maddie? Because that was there was a threat at the end with Maddie, and it was unclear. Well, no, I think the was threat she threatening Cassie, or was she she, threatening... she had said to Cassie, "This is only the beginning," or something along those lines. When Cassie was talking about how Nate had already broken up with her before she went and messed up the whole play, yeah, I think that she was referring to the psychological trauma that Nate will put Cassie through if she continues to be with him. Yeah. And not the fact that she's going to absolutely ruin Cassie's life, which she will do as well. But I think that Maddie has had a lot of character development in not completely freaking out at Cassie from the beginning. She's concealed it enough to the point where it's really scary. And I think that something is brewing. 
How does Sam rate you in this season three? Um, I soccer think that like I, I could I could be a soccer captain. I could be I could be Lexi's new best friend because Rue's not there for her. Oh yeah. I could be I could be a million different things. I think they need more wholesome people on this TV show. Yeah, you and Lexi, you're like the me and Lexi crew. could be the the besties. Maddie hates you guys because you're so wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds great. So what's your final grade for Euphoria? I'd give this season a 9.5 out of 10. And that 0.5 was lost because of the entire singing scene at the end of episode eight. Just let's not do that ever again, Sam. And keep your timeline straight. All right. That's all I got to say. Great to see you as always. Thank you for having me. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Kyle Creighton, as always. Thanks to Dylan Berkey and Steve Cerruti. I will be back on this feed on Thursday night. See you then.